Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Read Up, the podcast where we talk about books intellectually and stuff. Today's books, I have two for you today with a special guest. Uh, today's books are going to be The Hound of the Baskervilles by um, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a Sherlock Holmes mystery, and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Today, I have with me is Scott from the DC Film Squadcast. How are you today? I'm very excited to be on this episode because I have such a deep connection to both of these books. And I was so glad not only did you invite me, but that you said, oh, let's put them all in the same episode. And I was like, woohoo. This is a Victorian episode. We have our top hats and our and our top coats and our pipes and our canes that have swords in them. We are ready to go. Yoo-hoo. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Um, I so – if those of you who do not know the stories, that they're relatively famous. Uh, you may have heard of – you may have heard of them. Strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde um, is revolves around the mystery that of reconciling who Mister Hyde is and his strange relationship to the well esteemed Doctor Jekyll. Um, and what I find most interesting about the strange case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is that it's not the perspective of Doctor Jekyll at all. It is um, it's the mystery of their relationship, and that's not normally how people think of um that story and it's almost like dracula in a way where like dracula is really not the main character nor is he in much of the book it's about everybody solving the mystery of dracula and um and uh the hound of the baskervilles is indeed a mystery into which sherlock holmes is solving uh on the moors in nor um a bit of northern england and uh and it's a good time. Let's talk about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde first. What is your relationship to this story? Well, um, I, I first read it when I was in the sixth grade because I was that nerd that uh, back when I was a kid, Walmart used to do two-for-a-dollar classics and, and not and not the great illustrated classics like for kids, like complete and unabridged classics. And so when uh, other yeah, kids right would on. behave well at the store – yeah, and when kids would behave well at the store, some pe- kids got candy bars. I got books. So there was a really and these and these were like you know screwed don't judge a book by its cover these these that's how I picked out these books was ooh that looks interesting I judge every book by its cover even if I love the book like I still judge it by its cover I am 100% a cover judger always so- so that's when I read it. And, of course, you know, it's one of those books, like you said, it's weird from our perspective in these times because we know the ending. We know what the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is. So it's really interesting to go back and read the book and go, you weren't supposed to know. Like that's the big – that's almost like the M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end of the book because it's all told from his best friend's perspective, his lawyer's perspective. That's right. John, his best – his BFF John, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, John Utterson. Utterson. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I found that interesting as well. Like it's it, – like you said, it's the Shyamalan twist. Like, oh my god, they're the same person. Spoilers. Um, so they're the same body, I guess you could say. Like they're not really the same person. They're the same body. And, um, and it does lose its lust, the story, like a Shyamalan twist. Once you know the twist, it loses its luster, um, in the way the story is framed. If you look at it from the perspective, if you look at it, a thematic perspective, you know, the, um, 
dualism and and maybe even a bit of classism and stuff like that, then it's still an interesting read going back and um, going back and looking at it um, with a critical eye. But as a plot goes, it does lose its luster once you know the twist. Yeah, because you're you're not as interested in Utterson figuring it out because you already know. That's correct. And and so that's – it, it kind of gets just frustrating because you almost are waiting – once again, spoilers. But the last chapter is Dr. Jekyll's confession. And basically while you've worked your way up to this point in the story of Utterson trying to figure it out, the last chapter of the book is, OK, now let's let Henry Jekyll explain the whole thing to us from the beginning. And, and fill us in. And you almost want to jump to that part of the book because that's the part of the story you actually want to read. Or at least when you read the book for the first time, that's what you think the whole book is going to be, is what that last chapter is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, that's kind of interesting because uh, another connection I have for this is that I've written a stage play adaptation of this book. It's actually the one copyright I own is this play that I adapted. That's cool. That's very and cool. And I wanted to explore that element of it uh, more deeply because that's what I found interesting. So I actually wrote a play where Jekyll and Hyde are played by two different actors. And the whole point is that they can talk to each other like it's, you know, some sort of dissociative identity disorder. That's cool. I like that. I like that perspective because, I mean, there's that moment in I don't know if you've seen Jekyll and Hyde the musical. Um, oh yes, yeah, I have. Yeah, it's fun. It's good fun. It, it's a little popcorn flary, a little bit more like I guess a pulpy style of Jekyll and Hyde. But they have this great song, "The Confrontation," in which the actor playing Jekyll and Hyde has to sing opposite uh, himself. Um, you know, and so he sings as Jekyll talking to Hyde, the back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's very fun. I love it. And um, but I think you get. It's still one actor playing one part, and so you don't really get the immensity of the the how different Hyde is from Jekyll. Yeah, I actually competed in a musical theater competition with that solo in high school, which is what actually inspired me to – that inspired the concept of when I wrote the play in college. Mm-hmm. What's the, so it's what's very the- interesting that you made that connection. Is the is the play is the play for a particular age group? Is it like it's like an adult put it on stage in a in a theater, or is it like yes, kid it age? is okay. I wasn't sure if it was like okay, eighth graders, let's do this. Oh no no no! The whole point of this was to explore the darkness and depravity, and like what the book does, I think. A simplification that happens for too many people who read this book is that Jekyll's the good person and Hyde is the bad person. And what what gets what gets oversimplified and lost is no Jekyll's not a good person. The whole reason for him going through this experiment is the Victorian um, moral oppression system, <laughs> right? And him trying to purge. His darker impulses like he is a he has issues and he's trying to by scientific means purge that, you know, almost like a cheat. And what he ends up doing is instead of purging them, he just ends up distilling them into a personality. And and the interesting thing is that when you read Stevenson's descriptions of Hyde, he's a shorter man. He's hairy. It's like he's devolved. It's like what happens when you're only part of a person instead of being the whole person. 
And it's not like this, I'm the cool, suave version of, of me or a completely different person. I am this base, depraved, devolved. So when I see depictions of Hyde, kind of like, you know, the old, there's like an old 30s, I forgot the actor who plays him. Oh, Frederick March. Yep. Like when they make him look almost caveman-esque, mm-hmm. that's the way he's described in the book. You know what actually does a great um – not a terribly great film altogether, but a a good depiction of the two of them separately. Um, but actually, a good read on Jekyll not being a great person and Hyde is the Page Master. Um, yes, because the Doctor Jekyll is not a good person in that story, and then when he devolves, he is that you know Neanderthal type, um, long armed, hairy. People give crap to the um, the gorilla esque. Um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But again, it's also he's not a good person on either on really either end of the on either end of that scope. Um, But the thing is that Hyde is not all evil either, because like the first thing that you you um, you know of him doing is like trampling on a kid. Right. He like barrels over a kid and walks over her. Not great. But he also lingers and waits around for the police and he you know he pays for the stuff and like you know he's not like um there's still a sense of propriety i guess within hyde so like jekyll's not all good and hyde is not all evil they're just uh, d- different extremes of the same person well yeah and hyde i mean granted he's paying them to shut them up is how at least i interpreted that but he's still Felt some sense of duty, duty, or at least, okay, I can't just completely ignore this. So, yeah, I get that. He's still a terrible person. Sure. Oh, yeah. But but he's not a complete, utter monster. No, he he doesn't. Jekyll doesn't go from Saint to Jack the Ripper in one swing. Like that's, uh, you know, there's a like you said, it's a there's a closer line drawn between them than uh than um than people really give them credit for you know because we, we talked dr jekyll and mr hyde they talk about the duality of man and what people are capable of and everything but you said it's really about the oppressiveness of societal norms and and jekyll's need to cleanse himself of well it's, it works two ways it's either he's cleansing himself to be part of the society or He's so oppressed, he needs a way to release some pent-up aggression. Right. And and the funny part is that when you read other characters in the book, it also points out the hypocrisy because nobody – you know, who is and is not a good person in this book? Like it's not like there are all these angels in this book. Mm -hmm. I still still question the death of the the member of parliament – uh, Carew, mm-hmm. who he kills, like that's kind of like what gets the ball rolling for the ultimate end is that Hyde straight up beats a guy to death, right? And you never know really why, and 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 sometimes because that first part of the book is all Utterson, that's the one thing that hurts a reading of the book. Sometimes is you don't always get all the motivation. That's a great point. Why? Because you have to maintain the mystery, but then because Jekyll doesn't have the opportunity to explain himself fully by the end, 
Well, he does to the reader, but he doesn't give you all of the the gory details. Um, you're you're missing some key pieces. Um, I always worked under the assumption that Jekyll had it in for Carew in some way, and so he then uses Hyde to achieve an end, going back to the case that Dr. Jekyll is not as good of a person as he's made out to be. Right. Yeah. And and it's also, I think, an interesting story that it's well documented that Stevenson's wife threw the first manuscript on the fire or Stevenson threw it on the, like the first draft got thrown on the fire and he had to like rewrite it like in a night or something. So I, I almost wonder if some details maybe got lost <laughs> between draft one and draft two. They throw it on the fire by accident or because it was bad? Uh, well, I think uh, Stevenson wrote it. The wife was shocked. And so he kind of like in fit of despair because he was Scottish and, you know. <laughs> Um, you know they they can have they can be a little emotional, and um, I speak as a Scot, and and he threw it on the fire, and, and then I think the wife saved it to go. No, 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 just don't don't do that. <laughs> and he had to end up rewriting parts of it. Ugh, that's so frustrating. You really must do copies, Stevenson. Must do copies. Um. Anyway, let's let us move to the Hound of the Baskervilles, a Sherlock a Sherlock Holmes mystery. It's one of the only novels um, of Sherlock Holmes. Most of them are short stories. Um, it, it's also famous for being the novel that he wrote after he killed off Sherlock Holmes in the short story, uh, the the final problem. Right, but yet the novel was set quote before his death it's like i need money i'll write the novel but i'm not bringing him back because i'm setting it before his death that's right this is this is conan doyle doing the good old prequel no 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 he's not dead like this is before Sherlock holmes always has time for a mystery you know like so he solves one a week you know and there's only there's so many stories and this is years and years of Sherlock holmes i mean so um so you can go i think hunter baskervilles is a is a perfect little summation of what a, a great mystery looks or looks like. Um, it's creepy in all the right places. And it's, it's, it's really an invention of a subgenre in of itself, because it's one of the first um, supernatural mysteries um, of its kind. One that like, it could be a ghost. It could be a demon dog, but we're not positive about that. Um, and I find it's that kind of Scooby Doo. It's kind of Scooby Doo esque, yeah. Um, you know, like the dog was actually Shaggy the whole time. Um, so it is a little, um, it is a little invention of a subgenre, which is fun because Sherlock Holmes is so adamantly anti supernatural, and Conan Doyle was so adamantly supernatural that it basically ruined his life. Um, mm -hmm. That he put all his money in the the wrong tea leaves and um, almost lost everything. Uh, and so it's, it's fun that Sherlock Holmes is like, he's kind of, even though he's written by Conan Doyle is the antithesis to what Conan Doyle actually believes. Yes. And that, however, makes it what I think makes the how the basketball is because one personally, it is the strongest of the four novels. Because he only wrote four novels. Everything else was a short story mm -hmm. that Doyle wrote for Sherlock Holmes. And I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. I have all the books. I've been to Baker Street when I've been in London. Yeah, Baker Street. I'm, it's just a street. It's crazy. 
<laughs> I know, it's right? Just but a there's street. a little, yeah. It's just street, but there's a little museum there. It's really fun. Yeah, I actually have a um when I went there, they you know they had those like metal like the the metal street signs that you can get. Mm-hmm. I have one outside the Baker one street one outside my classroom. I have that one too. Nice. I used to have it outside the library in my old house. Now it just sits on a bookshelf with a little bust and a little serving tr- and a little tea tray. Because nice. I even got one of the little business cards. Oh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. I like that. But the thing about the book, I think it is definitely a book. If you want to talk about how setting, how environment can make or break a story. That's good. Mm-hmm. This novel, if it's not for the idea of being in this manor house in the middle of nowhere, in the foggy moors of northern England, like the story doesn't work if you set it anywhere else. No, it does not. No, I think I I mean, you could in essence think like, okay, so, you know, like if you wanted to maybe make a story. Like, let's say Sherlock Holmes is living in Philadelphia and he's got to go to um, the bayou to solve this problem, right? And then you're talking like a southern gothic vibe to the Hound of Baskervilles. It's almost kind of the equivalent to that um, to that, but in but in England instead, you know, you don't it's hard to it's hard to escape the allure of rolling mist. Exactly. Like, it, you know, if going with your metaphor, it would be like going to a plantation house in the middle of Louisiana. That's correct. That is correct. Yep. Nothing for miles. Maybe there's some gators in your backyard. You know, some ghost gators, perhaps. That's kind of the. <laughs> wow. We have told, like, we need to make this, like, that's money sitting on the table, Tim. No like, kidding. We just... <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> The gator of Baskerville Plantation, like this is, you know, that's that's what's missing here. That's but that's what makes this story interesting. Also, the fact that Sherlock Holmes is barely in the book. It takes him. He's in the beginning, you know, when he's like, when he's doing his like testing Watson thing, where he's like, "Tell me about this cane. Go ahead, just to, to do it. Just tell me about all the stuff." And then and then it's mostly Watson until Holmes like pops up in the movie. He's like, "No, nah, I've been living on the moor." <laughs> right, because it's one of those things that's like. Holmes has already figured it out almost by the time he shows up. That's right. Because you're allowed to experience it with Watson. Watson introduces you to the characters. Watson gets to hear all the stories. And so the whole idea is that you're there. Like like Watson has always been the everyman in these stories. He's the audience viewing the, the story, viewing the mystery. And so you're just allowed to live through most of the story with Watson. So by the time Holmes shows up, Holmes is pretty much already got it figured out, and that's why you – it's almost like you have to justify why the mystery isn't solved quickly is because, well, Holmes wasn't there. Because if Holmes was there, you know, the expectation would almost be that he would go bada-bing, bada-boom, I've got the mystery solved. To make it a novel length almost, A, you need Holmes gone for most of it, and then B, there's a huge chunk of the book that's like – well, let me tell you a story because I need to because f- I need to fill you in on the backstory that makes the resolution of the mystery make sense. It's almost like you can see how Doyle stretched this out to make it a full novel. It's true, but by by also um, having Watson go up to Baskerville Hall first, um, he is 
he's lending credence to the supernatural side of things because Watson being the everyman has the tendency to be creeped out and to maybe think that the hound is a ghostly apparition and to all these things that like give the reader the, um, the expectancy of dread that will dissipate once Holmes shows up. So it does to your point about environment, making or breaking a book, Watson adds to that flavor by feeding into the more itself, uh, which is, which is good. I mean, you could, you could probably do this as a short story by cutting all that out, but I don't think you get the flavor for, for the Moors without Watson being there walking around and running around first. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. And I mean, Watson being the POV character is the grand tradition of all mystery novels, you know, going back to, or stories, I should say, going back to Dupin, you know, and his, uh, his unnamed narrator friend who's like, that's my friend detective, you know, who like solves mysteries. Cause if Sherlock Holmes is your POV character, you're in his mind, which means that you, the reader know the mystery. Exactly. Now there's a there have been multiple adaptations of this. It's probably arguably the most famous Sherlock Holmes story, oh, yeah. the most famous mystery. Uh there's a BBC production from the I think two thousand had Richard Roxbury as Sherlock Holmes that I saw on PBS that is an excellent adaptation and they even added to the story a little bit by throwing in like seances and like really giving you that spiritualism feel that really sort of uh gave you insight into doyle as a person and added to that sense of of watson experiencing the supernatural spiritualism that made you believe oh wait a minute maybe there really is this ghost dog haunting the manor that's cool. I want to look for that. I'm going to look for that version because most filmed adaptations of Baskervilles I find wanting. I don't always find Sherlock Holmes story uh, filmed versions wanting. A lot of them I find really enjoyable, um, even when they change things. Uh, that doesn't make a huge difference to me. Baskervilles is always a strange one um, to to get right, so I'm going to check that one out. Uh, but Scott, thank you so much for coming on to talk about these uh, talk about these stories. You'll be back, I'm sure. Um, but before then, uh, tell us where we can find you. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at ScottDC27. You can listen to my podcast, the DC Film Squadcast, wherever you find your podcast, or also on Vero, Facebook, YouTube, and you can find the entire network of shows at squadcastmedia.com. Wonderful. Okay. Well, Scott, thanks for having uh, thanks for uh, having the time to come on, and I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Bye, guy. You have been listening to Read Up, the podcast where we talk about books intellectually and stuff. You can find Read Up on Twitter at Read Up Podcast and the host at Timothy PG thirteen. Rate and review Read Up on iTunes and listen on any place podcasts can be found. Head over to patreon.com slash thoughtbubbleaudio to support all of your favorite Thought Bubble Audio podcasts. You can find all of the Thought Bubble Audio programs at thoughtbubbleaudio.com. Until next time, have a good read.